Yeah, so Airbnb arbitrage, also known as Airbnb subleasing, is the process where you rent a property from an owner, like on a 12-month lease. You get permission from the owner to use that property for your short-term rental business, and then you list it on platforms like Airbnb and VRBO. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Financial Independence Show, where today we have on Jorge Contreras, who's going to be talking about Airbnb arbitrage and how you can make money without even owning real estate. But before that, let me check in my co-host, Justin. What is going on, man? Hey, Cody. Yeah, I got a, a ton to kind of go over. So hopefully I'll keep it pretty succinct. But last week was just a, an awesome week of like one of those weeks where you just feel super privileged where I got to fly out and ski with my buddy in Park City, which was awesome. It was one of my friends that I'd known for a long time from the Air Force, but we don't get to see each other very much because he lives more up in the kind of DC area. Then from there, I cut my trip a little short so I could fly back and do this trip with Leslie and her mom, which was incredible, where we went out to Marfa and Big Ben. And we stayed in these crazy bubbles and it was like the most insane stars I've ever seen. Got really lucky with the weather. And we also got to stay at the McDonald Observatory, which is this big observatory. And if you don't know what observatory is, it's like a huge telescope kind of setup. They have multiple that's actually ran by the University of Texas. And because she does some teaching at the University of Texas, she's allowed to get to actually stay there. So that was really cool. And it was also the first time I got to take the Tesla on like a long road trip. So, you know, a lot of people kind of, that's what keeps them from buying electric cars. They're like, I can't go very far. It's like, well, I just drove out into the middle of nowhere in the desert. So it's definitely possible. And then we had a Super Bowl party we hosted. So got the pizza oven fired back up. That was really fun. And then had Valentine's Day. And as part of Valentine's Day, Leslie surprised me with a trip out to this new club in in Austin, which I had to send Cody some pictures of because <laughs> last time he was in Austin, he was getting bottle service. So I had to send him some bottle service pics. And then on actual Valentine's Day, I got to utilize my new skill of 3D printing. And I printed these little uh, kind of cupcake toppers that were customized for Leslie and like a heart-shaped box and the whole deal. And so it was nice to be able to make something, you know, really unique and custom that only cost like probably less than $2 in plastic. So that was nice to get to kind of use that new thing that I got for an actual benefit. How about you, Cody? What were you up to? Well, sounds like you had an awesome week and I had a pretty good week as well. So right when the last episode came out, we were coming back from our ski trip in Banff and I, I think I updated the listeners last week on how awesome that was. The conditions were amazing. We did dog sledding. We got to do all these cool things. And if you haven't been up in that area, it's just I highly recommend it, Banff and Canmore. Then we got back and it was actually my birthday weekend. So my actual birthday is Valentine's Day on Tuesday, but we did the celebration over the weekend. Actually, three of us from my friend group at home have very close birthdays. One's on the 8th, one's on the 12th, one's on the 14th. So we did, speaking of bottle service, a big club night out at Foxwoods, which is a local casino. And so our friend is actually a bottle girl there. We got bottle service. We got like the signs with the sparklers, the whole nine yards. (laughs) It was a ton of fun. It was a whole big group of us. So that was a lot of fun. And then the next day after that, so that was Saturday night, we had a Super Bowl party at my buddy's place and they got a ton of food. They were making a bunch of drinks and I was really sad to see the Chiefs win, but uh, I guess that's just the way it goes. And then on actual Valentine's Day slash my birthday, I know we talked about this a few episodes ago, Justin, but this was the first year we have not actually gone out on Valentine's Day, like actually gone to a restaurant, gone somewhere. And I think we had talked about this before. It's just like, it's so crazy. It's so hectic. And, you know, we like to do that on maybe a different night. We just kind of hung in. We've been watching a lot of MasterChef Junior. So (laughs) Lauren was putting her chef skills to the test. She made this like awesome filet mignon with asparagus and like truffle cauliflower rice. It was really good. And yeah, we just hung in and spent time with each other, went on a walk, and it was an awesome day. And we'll probably celebrate Valentine's Day like everybody else celebrates it another day this week or another day next week when the restaurants aren't like jam-packed and you're waiting three hours for your food to come because every single person who doesn't go out to eat during the year is going out to eat that (laughs) night. So, And I got the much-needed workout clothes and you know all the necessities, and I never buy myself clothes. So if Lauren's not getting me like new gym shorts or a new gym shirt or socks or underwear or whatever... It's not happening because I just don't buy that stuff myself. So yeah, for me, it was was another busy, awesome week as well. 
Well, first off, happy belated birthday, Cody. Always fun to celebrate. And then I could not agree with you more on the Valentine's Day thing. We never go out on Valentine's Day. I can't stand being told like, okay, you get two choices on a menu and it's (laughs) overpriced and the food's probably cold because the reason that they only have two options is because they're back there just mass producing that stuff. So like it's the worst day to go out to eat. I also, you know, cooked us a, a meal that was kind of special to us because it's a meal that I cooked Leslie back when we were dating and I haven't cooked it in forever. It's this kind of like where you stuff a chicken breast full of cheddar and, do, and then caramelize like barbecue sauce on it. So I'm a big fan of cooking as well. So I think you're on the mark there and glad you got some new clothes or you don't have to run around with holes in it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I've had too many pieces of clothes actually torn in half physically by Lauren and thrown in the trash because she's like, you're not wearing this anymore. <laughs> but With the transition of the century, speaking of cooking, let's talk about cooking up a new side hustle, a new income stream with our guest today, Jorge Contreras. So Jorge, this is honestly one of those episodes where I went back and listened again and I'm like, this is something that I could seriously do, something I'm seriously considering. It seems like something that could be super systematized and it was something that I'd never really heard of before. That's a long winded way of saying it's really cool and it's called Airbnb Arbitrage. So basically, in a nutshell, Jorge is like signing leases. I'm not going to give away the whole episode here, but he's signing leases. He's Airbnb out these leases that he signed. And at this point, he has like dozens of leases that are in his name or that are in his company's name. And he is making an absolute killing. And so it doesn't involve any ownership. It's just basically finding the arbitrage in the market of like this place is listed for long term rent. It seems like I could get way more in this market for a short-term rental and Jorge is just capitalizing on that. And he really gets into the weeds of like, this is exactly how you do it. These are the documents you need. This is the processes you need. And I just think this is one that a lot of people from our audience, if they're interested, this is one you can literally listen, take notes and start acting on this in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, I always love an episode where we can take and kind of just break down a barrier that's keeping somebody from progressing. And that's like exactly to me what this episode is. Not only are you getting these like really tactical things, but it's also tactical things to break down the biggest hesitation that people would have with trying to do an Airbnb. And that's actually owning a property in the first place. Like this makes it so that your time horizon is so much shorter. Your capital need is so much smaller. Like it is just a much easier thing to try with so much less risk and still a lot of upside. Obviously, there's like, you know, some regulatory things you need to look at and you need to pay attention to the details. But there's a good chance that either in your market or a market nearby, like you could make this work and it could be something that doesn't take months or years to get off the ground. Like you're going to go into somewhere with a blank slate that's pretty much ready to roll. All you got to do is move in the things that you need to make it a unique Airbnb and get it listed and then start to see those benefits. And again, not having to wait until you get enough capital to buy a property and not having to take on as much risk because that lease has a lifespan. You can always walk away when that lease is over. So if Airbnb arbitrage is something that you think would be interesting and you want to go and find all the links back to Jorge so you can dive even deeper or you know someone who you think would be interested in an episode like this, you can find all that and share the episode from thefyshow.com slash Jorge. That's thefyshow.com slash J-O-R-G-E. Take it away, Jorge. Often what I feel that gets in the way of entrepreneurs becoming the greatest version of themselves, or even just as human beings, is not working through those things that we experience at a young age that actually create a lot of our limiting beliefs and shape our values, our beliefs, and the action or the action that we don't take. And I feel a lot of times people see the success that entrepreneurs have, but they never get to hear the backstory, the challenges, how they overcame. So yeah, I'm excited to go there. Earliest memory is five years young, And I know for me, I believe that our body stores emotion as memory. And the first memory that my body store that I remember is being at my half brother's funeral when I was five years young. He was murdered by gangs when he was 16. It was like a setup. And then after that, my next memory is being seven years young and selling drugs with my dad. Every morning, he would be like, he called me Jorjito. He said, I'm going to take you to McDonald's and get a Happy Meal. But before we would go to McDonald's, he would take me to like these factories And then he would give me the drugs and I would do like the swap, like the money for the drugs. And it was normal. It was one of those things where the fish doesn't know that it's in the water. I thought everyone sold drugs, right? As crazy as that sounds, like I didn't think that there was anything wrong. This was just normal. I was born into this life. My dad was also an alcoholic. And when I was seven, the doctor told him that if he wanted to see his youngest son, Jorjito, grow up, he needed to stop drinking. 
And he did, but the damage was too far and too long. And so when I was 12, he passed away from alcohol. And then a few months later, when I turned 13, my mom abandoned me. So definitely a lot of challenges uh, in my upbringing out of all my brothers and sisters from my dad's side, from my mom's side, from both parents, there's eight of us. And I'm the only one who graduated high school. I did seventh grade twice, graduated high school with four Fs and one D, and then I dropped out of college. So that's the story there. <laughs> yeah, that is an insane story. I mean, any kind of success coming out of that many hurdles that you had is impressive and obviously turned out very successful. Like you're going into high school, no one in your family has graduated high school. I know you said you ended up dropping out of college, but what did you kind of have as like your view of where your life was going to go? I know that's a big thing. Like me personally, I come from a nowhere near that rough a situation, but yeah. like not many people in my family graduate high school either. And it definitely does set like kind of a ceiling on what you think is possible. And so when you're getting ready to go into college, like what did you envision your life would be? That's a great question. Up until the time I was like 12, 13, I had a belief that my life would continue to be a reflection of what it always had been. Like, I didn't know that you could like change your life, right? Just because that's how I lived my first 12, 13 years until my seventh grade substitute teacher, Mr. Parcell, knew everything that I had experienced in my life, you know, with my brother, my dad's the drugs, smuggling people, which I forgot about that. We were smuggling people into this country when I was 10. And he knew all the challenges I was going through. And I was very like disruptive. I like never paid attention and I didn't follow the rules. I would like diss school. And so one day he came and he just kneeled down at my eye level as I'm sitting at my desk. And he said, Jorge, he said, you know that you don't have to be a product of your environment. He says, you don't have to repeat the same patterns as your brother and your father. He says, you can decide to set a new standard for your younger siblings. He said, you could decide to change your life and you could change the world. And when he said that, I was like, what? Like, it doesn't have to be the way it's always been. And so there was like a like paradigm shift in that moment where it was like, wow, I can actually make a change. And that was like the beginning of where I just started to look for role models, just people that would exemplify something where you weren't going in and out of jail or where you were present for your kids or you weren't doing anything illegal. And so my first role model after that, when I was 13, is uh, his name's Ron, which is funny because he's my best friend till this day. He's like 20 years younger than me. I'm sorry, 20 years older than me. And he's my Airbnb property manager now. <laughs> but he became my first role model. And at the time, he was a paralegal and he drove like a nice car, had a good job, and he wore a suit and tie to work. And I was like, this is weird. I've never met somebody like this guy who just has a normal life. I guess this is what normal is supposed to be. I believe that whatever you look for is also looking for you. And so I just began to look for role models and people that, again, would exemplify something that I would want to become. So seventh grade is kind of this pivot point, the substitute teacher. Then you meet Ron a little bit afterward. Then you drop out of college. I know you mentioned that a couple of minutes ago. Was there a reason like did you just start investing in real estate or entrepreneurship? Or what was kind of that first taste of like doing something on your own that was a bit different? So while I was in community college, I joined the salsa team because when I was 14, the lady I started living with, this is my mom's friend. And she took me in after my mom abandoned me. She said, hey, as long as you keep going to school, she said, I'll feed you, clothe you and put a roof over your head. When I was 14, one of her friends was having a quinceanera, right? Big 15th birthday celebration. And there's always a surprise dance. So they took us to this salsa studio from 15 to like 18. Every month or so, I started going to the salsa classes. I fell in love with the dance. When I went to community college, I joined the performance team. My dance partner there introduced me to a sensual partner dance from the Dominican Republic called Bachata. I fell in love with this dance, started watching YouTube videos back in like 07. And I met my dance partner at the time. And together, we started to travel. We started to book gigs. We started a choreography company. We started doing classes. And we went to Arizona, Hawaii, we went to San Francisco, then we went to DC, Washington. And I had missed two classes. And my teacher, I remember they told us that if we missed three times, they would withdraw you from the class. So here I am basically on the edge. It was like, are you going to jump and fly and go all in on this business or stop dancing? Don't live your dream and just stay in college and you know, hope you get a high paying job. And so, of course, I did what any crazy entrepreneur would do. I jumped off the mountain, built an airplane on the way down, dropped out of college. I quit my job at Make of America at the time, and I went all into this dance business. That's how I 
dropped out of college. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's taking that leap of faith. And I don't think we've ever had anybody on the show who started a dance business. So that's pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah. And so like, where did that take you? Like, how did that evolve? Did you see success there, enough success to where you were yeah. all in on entrepreneurship? Or did you have a setback yeah. that maybe started making you question things? Yeah, great question. So 20 years young, all in on this business. Everyone else is doing what I'm doing is like in their 30s or 40s. So they're like, wow, how is this 22-year-old owns two of the largest Latin dance festivals in the world with 2,000 attendees every six months. We had these events for like every six months for 12 years. I started like a nightclub, the choreography company. I was traveling like every other month. I got to travel to over like 25 countries teaching and performing, all from 20 to like 28. When I was 24, I had a herniated disc in my L5S1. It had started when I was like 23 two and a half or so. And over an 18 month, two year period, it just got worse over time. I couldn't dance, then I couldn't run, then I couldn't walk. And then I was laid out on the floor and I was permanently hunched over because my sciatic nerve, it felt like somebody was sticking a knife and then twisting it if, every time I tried to stand up. 10 out of 10, but like there's physical pain and then there's like spiritual pain. It was like this out of this world pain. And I didn't have health insurance. So my girlfriend at the time said, all right, let's go to Tijuana, Mexico. There's a surgeon there. So she did all this research. We went and the surgeon said, man, at three millimeters, you need a surgery. Yours is eight. And that's why you can't stand up straight. He said, we'll do your surgery tomorrow at seven in the morning. And by the way, it's a 50-50 chance you'll ever walk again after this. Wow. So that right there was a huge awakening for me because up until then, I needed my body in order to make money. And that's what led me into real estate. I'm like, what if I really can't walk? Like I was very optimistic that I was going to walk, but then it was like, what if I can't? What am I going to do now? Like I literally use my body. I do acrobatics, a lot of lifts. I need my body to make money. So that led me into how do I make money without using my body? And how do I make money without trading time for money? I always refer, like even in my bio, it says financially free at 29. I always refer to that business as my job because that's how I ran the business. If I didn't work for three weeks, no money came in for three weeks. And that is what led me down the path of real estate. So were you a solo operator in that dance company? Because it sounded like you had like these festivals. So you had two dance companies. Did you make zero money if you were out of commission? I mean, it wasn't zero. I definitely had some leverage. I had a team, but it's nowhere near what it is now. Like at the time, like me and my partner at the time, her name's Leslie, we're both visionaries. And now I look back and I'm like, no wonder we were so frustrated because we never had integrators. Like we always forced each other to do things that we really aren't good at and shouldn't be good at. We should double down on our strengths, not on our weaknesses. And so like we had help, but still like it's nowhere near the way things are today. So I, I still feel like there was very little leverage. So fast forward to that first, I don't know if it's a rental property or Airbnb arbitrage or like how real estate kind of unfolded for you. But what was that first entry point into real estate? Yeah. So in my last real job in 2008, I worked at Bank of America, opening up uh, personal checking accounts, business checking accounts. And at the time, I also did loans. So refis, purchases, HELOCs. And that was my introduction. It was like having a podcast without knowing that I had a podcast because I would sit across entrepreneurs, open up business checking accounts, do the purchases, and I would learn so much. But I never thought that I would end up in real estate. Fast forward, I was aware of, you know, different programs. So I bought my first property. I closed May 23rd of 2012 on a uh, single family home in Los Angeles, California, $240,000 purchase price. And I only had to put three and a half percent down. So all I needed was 8,200 for the down payment. It was a buyer's market. So the sellers paid the closing costs. And at the time I was already thinking about leverage, right? How do I get this home, but not have to pay any of the mortgage myself? So I rented out three rooms at 600 each. My mortgage payment was 1500. That was principal, interest, taxes, insurance, 300 in utilities. So those 600 times three rooms paid for everything. I saved those 1800 every month as if I was paying the mortgage. Two years later, I had $43,200 in my bank account and I built a studio in the backyard, 220 square foot studio with permits and everything. Then I started renting that for a thousand a month to a long-term tenant because I didn't know about Airbnbs at the time. So now I'm living mortgage payment free and making a thousand dollars a month from the back unit. And within two and a half years, right, I got a 40% ROI. Within two and a half years of renting that back unit, I got my $43,200 back. 
And then I remember growing up, people always said that money didn't grow on trees. And I realized that money does grow on trees if you learn how to plant money seeds. <laughs> that was my introduction. Fast forward in 2016, one of my dance students, her name is Nicole, she was talking to me how she had two duplexes in Fresno, California, and how she was making three and a half times on Airbnb what she was making from her long-term units. So at the beginning of 2017, I had uh, four leases. At this point, I already had a couple properties, three properties, and basically all of them were two units. So I had six doors. I put four doors on Airbnb in March of 2017, so almost six years ago, and I went from making 1500 per door to 3500 per door. Obviously, it was more work, more turnovers, all that stuff. But still, I went from making 6K in gross rental income to 14K in gross rental income. And that's when I realized that I was like out of the rat race. I didn't need my dance business anymore. And at the time, I was so over it. I didn't really want to do it. Like the passion wasn't there. It was a great chapter of my life, but I was ready for bigger and better things. So for like eight months, I was trying to figure out what to do, but all of my living expenses were already being covered by my net cash flow. And you mentioned one key word in there earlier, you know, leverage. And I'm kind of curious, like after that first deal, how did you think about going into those next deals? Did you want to be like really methodical and trying not to carry a lot of debt? Or were you like, you know what, leverage is the quickest way for me to build a ton of wealth? We'll be right back after a quick word from one of our sponsors. Today's sponsor is one I use on a daily basis at my company, Gold City Ventures. That is the sound of a sale in your Shopify store. But did you know that Shopify now also powers in-person selling? Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store or small business. Accept payments, manage inventory, they have everything. Shopify brings together your in-person and online sales business into one source of truth, one dashboard, everything in one place. You know exactly what's going on. And now they have all these customization options. They have plug and play tools that you can integrate with Instagram or TikTok or wherever. You can take your payments by phone or by tablet. Shopify makes it easy. Plus, if you have any questions, their support team is there to help you. I know we have a lot of entrepreneurs in this audience, and Shopify POS just breaks down that barrier to accepting payments with your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash fyshow, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash fyshow to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash fyshow. Now back to the show. Up until 2015, I had that Dave Ramsey mentality. In addition to the mortgage payment, I would send an extra 3000 to 5000 to the principal. And I was on track to paying off that house in the first eight years. And then in 2015, I wanted to acquire more real estate. But again, I didn't know how to get a second and a third property. I just knew how to do the FHA, how to rent the rooms. I knew how to do that unit in the back, but I didn't know the financing, like how do I get more? Plus... I was scared of the leverage. And then I became a student at the Rich Dad Education Coaching Program. And I had a one-on-one mentor that spent three days with me, eight hours a day. And the biggest mindset shift there was, she asked me, why are you paying down the mortgage? I said, because I want to be financially free. I want to become financially independent. And then she said, honey, that's not how you do it. And she's a multimillionaire, owns like a ton of units, like 100 units at this time very wealthy person in her 40s. And I said, well, what should I do? And then she broke down the numbers, how I could do an 80% loan to value refi cash out. And she mentioned to me that I could take out $160,000 tax-free. She said, what I want you to do with those $160,000 is go and buy two more units and do the house hacking again. So I joined the coaching in August of 2015. And in January of 2017, right, this is even before the Airbnbs, I purchased two more properties and turned both of those into two units by doing house hacking, like ADUs. And then that's how in March, I was able to launch four of those units. That was the shift. I got educated. I learned from a multimillionaire and I just learned multiple strategies. I learned about flipping, wholesaling, rental income, commercial, property management. And so I just took everything I learned from that program and applied it to Airbnb. So up until this point, we've talked exclusively about owning rental units. You had kind of the house hack, then you went toward the more Airbnb model, but something and one of the main reasons we had you on today, you just have such a unique angle and something we've never talked about before is this idea of Airbnb arbitrage. So I guess first, what is Airbnb arbitrage? And second, how and when do you get introduced to it? Yeah, so Airbnb arbitrage, also known as Airbnb subleasing is 
the process where you rent a property from an owner, like on a 12-month lease. You get permission from the owner to use that property for your short-term rental business. And then you list it on platforms like Airbnb and VRBO. And the way I got into Airbnb is I wanted to keep making more cash flow. At the, at the time, my priority was cash flow because I know that by increasing my cash flow, that's how I could become financially independent. That's how I could not need my dance business anymore. And I could essentially make money in my sleep for the most part. And I quickly realized that I didn't have the capital to buy a property like every six months or every three months or maybe even every year at the time. So I started learning about subleasing and it was strictly a cash flow play, right? Because you don't get the equity, you don't get the appreciation, you don't get all the tax benefits because you don't own it. So when you do arbitrage, it is strictly a cash flow play and it's the most effective way, in my experience, to create financial independence or to become financially free. And so me and my partner in 2019, we went and we launched seven of our own subleases because you just needed the first month, the rent, just like when you live in the property and the furniture, just like when you live in the property. The only difference is you're not living there. And that's how we got into it. And that's what led me down that path. And how common have you found this to be as far as the acceptance from the landlords to allow you to do this? Like, is this something that Maybe one in a hundred would let you do, or most of them are like, yeah. or you found in your experience, it's actually more than you would think. Yeah, it's about 30%. So three out of 10 will say yes. You get everything in between, man. You get people that will hang up on you. You will get people that will say, well, come look at it. Let's do your application. And then I'll tell you. And then there's people that on the first phone call, they're like, you know what? We'd be open to this. I mean, there's one sublease I have right now where the owner does Airbnb and other locations, but never thought that this location would actually do well. And she was very familiar with it and allowed us to do it. So it's a numbers game, right? Same thing. If you're flipping, if you're wholesaling, you know, you're trying to find motivated sellers and it's the same thing. You're going to get maybe one in 10. Sometimes it's less. It's like one in 30, right? You got to shoot like 30 offers to get one where the margins make sense. I feel like most things in business, it's always going to be a numbers game. And I feel that the number one income skill that I have found that helps people make the most amount of money is sales. And so when you're a great communicator or you become a great communicator, you're going to make more money. And I feel like this is also an opportunity for people to learn great communication and sales skills in order to increase their income. So Justin and I love to get super tactical on the show. And so listeners can actually go and implement this. And someone's like, this sounds like the coolest thing ever, Jorge. Like I don't have the money for an Airbnb, but I want to get into Airbnb. What does it look like when you say I put in 30 offers? Like you're just sending landlords messages on apartments.com and Zillow and saying, hey, like I'm Jorge. I want to sublease your place in Airbnb and Outer. What does that exchange look like? Yeah, that's a great question. So we find properties on Zillow. And personally, I go for single family homes because I want to be able to host groups of eight to 12 people, which allows me to charge a higher nightly rate and in my experience, have a higher profit margin than an apartment. Apartments are great. They make less money, but they also take less money. So it's a great starting place for someone that has limited capital or for someone who wants to test the waters. With the houses, I get properties that have pools, jacuzzis, and a game room. So I can create a staycation experience in addition to being close to the downtown, the theme parks, the beach, or whatever it is. So three bedroom, two bathroom, minimum of 1,100 square feet. But of course, the more bedrooms, the more bathrooms, the more square footage, the better. And typically, when I find a property that is near downtown and it's got a great backyard, ideally, if it has a two-car garage and driveway parking space, I'll turn the garage into a game room. And when I contact the landlord, I ask them, hey, do you work with corporate housing companies? And like eight out of 10 times they're like, no, or I'm not sure what that is or what is that? And this is my opportunity to now educate them about what this is. And I have found that like 90% of the time when a landlord or property management company says no, it's only because we failed to educate them enough for them to understand it enough to say yes, right? Because they always have different concerns. Like, well, I don't want different people coming in here. What about wear and tear? How do I know you're going to pay me on time? What about city permits? So it's like the more you understand, the more you're educated, the more you could provide a solution to every objection that they have. And then they're like, okay, well, let's try it out. Let's do this for a year. If it works out, great. And if not, then we won't renew the lease, you know? And the reason we pitch it as corporate housing is Airbnb has become so big in the media, right? And, you know, especially once it went public, 
every couple of weeks somewhere in the world or somewhere in the US, there's like a horror story where this happened or that happened. And these landlords think that when you say the word Airbnb, they're like, oh, Justin and Cody, you're going to have parties here. I don't want parties in my property. So the Airbnb word is like a word that you really shouldn't say. It's better to say short-term rentals, vacation rental, or corporate housing. Now, in reality, when we allow guests to book our properties, we really only work with professionals. What does that mean? Someone who's just going to have a good time, be professional, and not throw the party or cause any damage to the property or disrupt the neighborhood. That's a professional to us. And the best way to pitch that is pitch it as corporate housing, and it's a much more acceptable way. And then we do tell them that we use multiple platforms, short-to-rental platforms, in order to market and attract our ideal guest. Well, one thing you just said, I think would be very applicable to people who are interested in doing Airbnb themselves or the arbitrage method, which is that like finding those tenants who aren't going to throw all the parties, or I guess tenant, maybe not the right word, find those renters who are yeah. you know, not going to throw the parties, who are going to be professional. Is there something that like, you're legitimately doing to try to get a yeah. certain type of guest? Absolutely. There's a couple of things that we do. And the goal is how do we get people to not throw a party here? And with every property, it could be a little bit different because I have some smaller units versus bigger units, different locations. So we always make adjustments and pivot as necessary. Like if someone does throw a party, we're like, okay, how did we create this? You know, let's take responsibility for this. I'll give you an example. I have this one property in Long Beach, California. It's a three-two craftsman home, same sublease I mentioned earlier. It's two blocks from the beach. It's in a very, very nice high-end area. All the homes there are from like 1.2 to like 2.5 million two blocks from the beach. We started hosting on this sublease with about 10 people. And then we noticed that the parking is very, very limited when you're near the beach in that area. And guests were complaining that the street parking was taken. So then we lowered it to eight. And then there were still a little bit of complaints and neighbors were very sensitive. So we lowered it to six. It very mildly impacted our revenue, like barely, maybe like 5%. So even with six people, we just did our calculations. We made 52000 And I know this sounds crazy. And a lot of people are honestly not going to believe, and that's totally fine. But this property made $52,000 in net profit last year, even wow. with only six people staying in this property. Again, it's a really nice property, and it's a prime location. It's pretty close to the downtown. So there's always conferences, conventions. You have the Queen Mary. That given, this property... It's worth to mention, we invested probably about $30,000 to launch it because we went with super high-end decor, design, furniture. And the crazy part is all the appliances were there, refrigerator, washer, dryer, stove, microwave, all there, all stainless steel, super high-end. If we would have paid for those things, we would have paid like 38, maybe 40K, which is a lot for a sublease. But again, when I launch properties, I'm okay paying top dollar in order to get top net cash flow. Again, it didn't start that way, but now that I'm more successful and I have the financial means to do it, like I only want the best. So something you mentioned earlier, and it just kind of triggered a light bulb in my head. I'm like, okay, this sounds like too good to be true. I think you mentioned you and your partner in 2019 had eight subleases at once. Some people are scared to sign one lease. Is there any kind of legal thing that people should be watching out for, like signing eight leases at once and subleasing them out? It seems like a lot to the average person. Yeah, that's a good question. And maybe it is, you know, like, I think at the time, essentially, I had already been investing in real estate for eight years. My business partner is like savage in the sense where he's like an Albert Einstein. He worked as a W-2 employee for three of the largest real estate firms in the US. He did about $1.6 billion with a B in development. Again, this was not his business. He did it as a W-2 employee making, you know, six figures plus, but he has his MBA He has like three degrees. I don't even know the names of all the degrees, right? But long story (laughs) short, this guy is just a freaking genius. He knows so much. Like he has equity in one of the buildings in downtown LA. Like the guy's just really smart. Like we just finished, like we have two developments right now, a three unit and a 12 unit. He's also uh, hired as a project manager for a 67 student housing development. So he knows real estate like the back of his hand from finding contractors, architects, project managing, the numbers, the data, all that stuff. At the same time, we both have like multiple six figures in our bank accounts. So I think it's important to mention those things because he yeah, has someone who's listening to this is like, whoa, I'm just getting started. I've never done this. I wouldn't sign seven leases. But again, we had the financial means to do it. 
We had a lot of experience in other areas of real estate. At the time, we had you know flipped one property before. We had done a bunch of ADUs, garage conversions, and we started Airbnb properties that he owned too. So that's why we were willing to go in there and just invest a ton of capital into those seven subleases. And speaking of people getting started and investing things, like obviously the one you mentioned where you put 30,000 in it, that's a more extreme example and probably not where somebody's going to start. But any amount of money that people are putting into staging these places for Airbnb, I imagine a risk that comes to mind right off the bat is, well, what do I do if they won't renew my lease? And I just spent all this money getting the startup and now it was only good for one year and I've got to figure out what to do with all this stuff and et cetera. It's a great question. And that is a possibility, right? Typically, the way we avoid that is we use softwares like AirDNA and MashVisor. They're like your comps in the short-term rental space. And we can see how much similar Airbnbs, similar in bedrooms, bathrooms, square footage, amenities, and location, how much they're making. And if I see that there's three Airbnbs making 8000 a month, and I can rent a similar one for 3000 a month, then that's like a no-brainer, right? That like eliminates like 90% of the risk. But let's say it did happen where somebody rented a property and they're not being able to, to cover their rent, they're a couple hundred dollars negative cash flow. I always advise people that learn from me and what I implement myself is always pay for a fair market rent. So don't overpay for a property to do Airbnb because if this did happen, you could always put a long-term tenant in there for the remainder of the lease. Let's say six months in, you're like, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. Cool. Find a long-term tenant that could live there for the next six months. And at the end of the lease, you could collect your deposit and then do whatever you want. In this scenario, let's say the person you were leasing from does say, hey, Jorge, like we're doing renovations or whatever. I'm moving back in. Would you just kind of pack up a moving truck or you'd have a team pack up a moving truck and move it over to a similar Airbnb type property in that location? Yeah, I can move it over to another location. I could put it in a storage until I identify another location, which might cost me 120 a month. So there's always a couple solutions. Yeah. With these, as you're like going and trying to find them, like you mentioned that you're preferring the single family homes, you prefer the above 1100 square feet, all that sort of thing. I'm trying to think if there's other things to look out for. Like you mentioned pools, you mentioned jacuzzis. I think like that's the most interesting part of this other than just the fact that it's a different way of doing it. But once you, I mean, once you kind of understand the concept, like it's fairly straightforward, but thinking which property really makes sense, like even the areas that you're talking about, like, is it really just does AirDNA have all the tools that you need to get that information you feel like? It is. AirDNA is a paid software. It's pretty expensive. You could buy it per city. If you pay for worldwide access, it's like (laughs) $7,000. But I mean, <laughs> most people, they'll launch, you know, two or three in this city, two or three in that city, or they just go all in in one location. So it might just be like 50 to $200 to get the data. But yeah, what AirDNA has is it has a rentalizer section. Type in the address of the property that you want to rent or purchase, and it'll look at the similar properties in the area, and it'll give you a projected revenue. So it'll say, hey, this property is projected to make $100,000 over the next 12 months. And that's based on real results from other similar properties, right? So if your rent's going to be 40000 a year, then you know what the numbers are. So in terms of kind of setting this up as a business and getting it completely automated, so I own Airbnbs, but I have not yet dabbled in Airbnb arbitrage. What are some of the differences and similarities in terms of the business? So I can think, of course, you're going to need cleaners. You're going to need people in there, like once someone leaves and getting it ready for the next person. But then like, Handyman, it's kind of like a question mark in my head because it's not your property that you own. So if like right. if there's a problem and a pinch that needs to be fixed, yeah. is it you or do you call your landlord or like how does that work? Yeah. So the way we kind of draw the line is if it's wear and tear that has nothing to do with guests, like no matter who's living there, it could have been a 12 month lease person living there, but the AC goes out or there's a foundation issue or something happens with, you know, the electricity, like If it wasn't caused by our guests and it's just wear and tear, then the owner's responsible. Anything that was directly caused by my guests, I'm responsible. And then it's going to be a pass-through cost where I'm going to charge my guests. Just like when you check into a hotel, they keep your credit card. Any damages or incidentals, right? they charge a credit card. So same thing. If somebody punches a hole in the wall or causes a leak and now we got to replace you know, floor in the living area or just anything, I'm going to submit a claim, right? which I'm sure you're familiar with, and then have my guests be responsible for that. And maybe just expanding on that question a little bit, like let's say it was an electrical issue 
but some landlords aren't super responsive. Like they're not there the next day. And when you're talking about Airbnb, normally you got to have some like real time fixes. So do you have a conversation up front with the landlord about, hey, this is kind of my expectation, almost like a service level agreement you would have with a company? Yeah, ideally, we put that into the lease agreement in writing, like, hey, anything that is wear and tear that was not caused by our guests, that's just the age of the property, the owner's responsible. Anything that is directly caused by our guest, you know, we're going to be responsible for. I'll put that, me as the tenant, I'm going to be responsible for it, and then which I'm going to then charge my guest. And do you also though have a conversation around like the speed in which like you're expecting them to, because like I said, I've lived places where sure. it was an issue that was the landlord's issue, but it took them like three days and that might not be acceptable in an Airbnb situation. Yeah, that's a good question. We don't usually have that conversation. I think we're just sort of making the assumption. So it's something that maybe we should put into the lease, right? Is like that all things need to be handled within two business days or something. <laughs> it's kind of weird because Cody would know, right? When you're hosting, you often have people that are checking out the same day that people are checking in the same day. You got like a five hour window. So typically what we do is we have our handyman fix it. And then if it, uh, if it had to do with, let's just say it was a really old fence on the driveway and it just fell over, like we're going to fix it. And then we're going to just invoice the owner. I've had a good experience for the most part. I've only had one bad experience with a landlord in San Diego. They said that everything they would make from the rental would go towards their kids, you know, college expenses. And they told us that they didn't have the ability to make upgrades. And so we kind of just kept running it like that. The house, this is the only bad experience I've ever had. And the house already was outdated. The good thing is I never saw the property like in three years of having it. The bad thing is I never saw the property. <laughs> so <laughs> it had a lot of wear and tear. And I would say that we had to refund maybe about 12% of our revenue over the year just because people were unhappy with how the property looked. And it was a really bad experience with the landlord. And it was something that just slipped. It was one of our first subleases in 2019. And again, it was part of our learning process because after that, we did started putting it in writing. But this way, everyone listening can kind of learn from my experience because it did suck. We knew that guests were going to show up and be like, oh, this place does not look the way it looked in the pictures, you know, two and a half years <laughs> ago. So yeah, it's important to have all those things in writing. Well, appreciate you coming on and sharing some of these mishaps because then hopefully our listeners can kind of take the good parts of what you've done with this amazing Airbnb arbitrage business. I do want to get back to the business building. We talked about the handyman. I think people Kind of understand that, like you should probably have a handyman that lives in the area that's pretty responsive so they can fix little things like a fence falling down or maybe a small electrical problem, whatever. What do you recommend for someone just getting started out? I know you're a little bit past that, but someone who's just getting started out, they're doing their first Airbnb arbitrage sublease for cleaners. Like it doesn't probably make sense for someone to hire a full-time cleaner. The cleaner probably wouldn't have enough work per week. Yeah, or like, question. Maybe there is some way that I'm not thinking of that sure. would make sense, but how do you typically recommend yeah. your people you coach to do that? Everybody that we hire and we've ever hired for our cleaning teams, they're already cleaning other properties. Very few of them were already cleaning Airbnbs. Most of them were cleaning like office buildings or just people's personal homes, but they might be on schedule where they clean those properties every two weeks or every month. And then long story short is we are not the only business they have. Even right now, every single one of my cleaners cleans other people's properties. Again, whether they're long-term, short-term or office. I have found people through like word of mouth. Like when I launched my San Diego, I hit one of my dance partners up who owned a studio. And I said, hey, who cleans your studio? She's like, Maria. And then I hired Maria. <laughs> and then I've also asked on social media, like I've gone into Facebook groups. There's a ton of Facebook groups out there for Airbnb, just like in every major city. I'll go in there and ask, hey, who has a cleaner that you recommend for Joshua Tree or for LA or San Diego? And then I've also gone on like Thumbtack. I've also used TaskRabbit. TaskRabbit is a really good one. They're really capitalizing on the gig economy and you could find people to do your furniture, to mount the TV, to do repairs, anything. So yeah, and Yelp as well. The other thing is we pay them per cleaning. We don't pay them per hour. I feel like it just keeps, it just makes things a lot easier. It's just a flat fee every time they clean it. And this way we don't have to worry about giving them enough work per hour where they only work for us or whatnot. And then just kind of continuing out like what you need to do in order to be ready, because obviously a killer, right? Is that you're sitting there paying rent and don't have somebody in there and you waste like three months trying to get this thing off the ground. Like what is your priority punch list? Like the things that have to be done, the things that you think are really important, like our professional photos, 
necessary? Yeah. Like, do you need a local guide? Like, like that sort of thing. Like, sure. what is it that people are maybe stressing about that is not necessarily necessary before they launch and what things really are? Ideally, you want to start, here's how you can get like two weeks of like free rent. Today's January 4th. So let's say that I'm signing a lease that's going to begin February 1st, right? Like I'm not going to sign a lease and be like, oh, it starts today. It's like, no, I need some time. I need to get my furniture. I need to set up. So I'm going to have the lease begin February 1st, which even though I'm giving them money now, it technically doesn't apply to February 1st. And then my goal is to get the keys now so I can start putting in furniture. So I'll typically ask a landlord or property manager, hey, is it okay if we start bringing some items in? Because it's going to take us a few weeks to launch. And then my goal would be to launch it live by like January 20th. So I give myself like two weeks to go live because some of those larger items take a week or 10 days to get delivered from Amazon. So ideally, I'll launch it by January 20th. I'll block it from the 20th through the 30th, but I'll start pre-marketing for all the future dates. So technically, by the time I start paying February 1st, like I'm already booked up for a couple of weeks. And by the time February is over, ideally, I had you know already some profit. That's super important. It's also important to set up like welcome books. Anything that requires explaining, you should film a video for. So like I'll literally have my video and let's say it's a jacuzzi. I'll be like, all right, guys, here's a video on how to operate the jacuzzi, how to turn it on, how to turn it off, how to monitor, you know, the different levels. And I'll make a video or I'll be like, hey, here's how you operate this keyless entry. Here's how you turn off the alarm. Anything that requires explaining, we'll record videos. We'll upload them as unlisted videos on YouTube. And then we just send them the link, right? With the unlisted video, only those who have a link can actually see the video. So those are a couple things there. Another thing, if somebody is already doing well financially, if it's a house, like a three bedroom house, I would have like four or five people for two days, even though it's going to cost you money. If it takes you 10 days less to launch because you had a lot of people there and the average night was 300, then you just booked up an extra $3,000 worth of bookings. And it just helps you launch faster. But again, if someone doesn't have the finances and it may take them like seven days, eight days, sometimes even 10 days, because it's a full house to launch, there's a lot of detail and you're going to lose out on those extra nights that could have been booked. But if you don't have the capital, then again, it's fine to just do it yourself. All right. So I'm feeling pretty confident. I'm going to try to list out all the things we've covered so far and then see what we're missing. So get the property under lease. Hopefully you get the key beforehand. You start furnishing that thing. You hopefully have a handyman on speed dial. You get a cleaner from whether it's a local Facebook group or TaskRabbit or Yelp or any of these websites. Turnover BNB yep. is another one. What other key components or key people am I missing in this equation to make sure that this thing doesn't go off the rails when I launch? Sure. I would go on upwork.com and hire a VA in uh, Mexico, Central America, or South America because we have similar time zones. And this way they can help you with communications, any communications before, during, and after. In my experience, you could pay a VA like 50 bucks a month, like per listing, because they might only spend like six, seven hours in total per month, as long as you, you know, automate a lot of things. So that is going to be very important. The other thing is you want to streamline communication. So what I'll do is I'll create a WhatsApp group or a Slack group. I'll put myself, the virtual assistant, the cleaner, the maintenance people. And if we're using Slack, obviously you have your workplace name and then for every channel is a property address. So once you have adding hmm. more, if I put something at 123 Street, then 123 Main Street, they know it's relevant to that. If I put it on XYZ Street, they know it's relevant to that property. This way you streamline the communication. The other thing is that's super important is to add the cleaner as a co-host on the listing so that they can see the calendar because you don't want to be telling them when to clean and when not to clean. I've made that mistake before. And this way, they can see the calendar just like you have and they know when to do that because that's like a tedious thing. Those are both some tips that like, you know, I've personally, we've had folks come on talking about Airbnb and I've never heard those specific tips like having the cleaner as that co-host. It's a great idea. So Hori, I think through the culmination of this episode, we've kind of talked through the entire process, how we're going to do that. And now maybe the only thing holding somebody back is having that little bit of cash flow necessary to kind of prime the well. Do you have any creative financing things yeah. that you've seen work? I do, Justin. That's a great question. And you know, one of the things when it comes to business and real estate is that if you keep acquiring, if you keep launching at a rapid rate, eventually you're going to run out of your own money. But if you learn how to leverage other people's money, you could never run out of other people's money. So even though I have the cash, I always leverage the bank's money to furnish my units and to be able to just grow and scale. Because again, if you have to wait to launch one, Let's say all you have is the money to launch one and you got to wait to recoup the funds and then launch another one. That works, 
but it's going to take a long time. So one of the strategies that I've been implementing and helping people with since 2008 when I worked at the bank is something called, it used to be called a balance transfer, and now it's called a cash advance. And that's where you can get a credit card that typically has a 0% promotional offer for up to 21 months. And you can transfer the money from the credit card into the checking account. Again, this is not from a credit card. To pay off a credit card, that's called the balance transfer now. Cash advance goes from your credit card into your checking account for up to 21 months, 0% interest, and they typically charge a 3 4 or 5% one-time fee. So if you take out 10K, they're going to deposit 9700 after they deduct their 300 And then you could use the profits from the Airbnb to then pay off the credit card. And because the money goes into your checking account, you could use that for the rent, the deposit, the furniture, or anything you want. Awesome. Well, I think that is going to bring this interview to a close. Honestly, this was probably one of the most action-packed interviews we've had. I'm not kidding, Jorge. Like You just gave us so many little <laughs> actionable pieces of advice. And so for those who want to follow along, I know you're super active on all social media. You have a whole community and program. What is the best place or places for people to get in touch and follow along? They do have a podcast called The Jorge Contreras Show. It's mostly all solo episodes. I talk a lot about mindset, have a YouTube channel, but the place where I post the most is my Instagram, which is at The Jorge Contreras. It's T-H-E and then my name, Jorge Contreras. There's no underscores, none of that stuff. Well, Jorge, it's been very impressive to see how much you've scaled this. And obviously you've done a ton of automation, but your time is still very precious, I'm sure. So I appreciate you loaning some of that time to us and the audience. And I know they're going to get a ton out of that. So appreciate you coming on. Thank you guys for the opportunity. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to another episode of The Fi Show. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us, the best way to do that is to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts share this with a friend. And also don't forget, you can find 200 plus episodes and all the information you'd ever want to have about these episodes over at thefyshow.com. Also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button because that way every Wednesday you can have our latest episode delivered straight to your phone. Until next time. Hey, real quick, before you go, I just want to remind you that I have made my personal like budget and net worth tracking spreadsheet available, the very same one that I use to track my net worth from $38,000 to over $1.2 million available for free on our website at thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet. So you can go download that today. That's thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet.